If you're visiting the old city of Jerusalem and you need a bed and breakfast, you should try the Eke Homo guest house. It's part of a Roman Catholic convent constructed in 1857. Today it's managed by an order of nuns known as the Sisters of Zion. Oh, there's maybe six or so that live there. The guest house boasts of a rooftop terrace, a 24-hour coffee bar, and even Wi-Fi in the common areas. TripAdvisor rates Eki Homo guest house Four and a half stars. Let me quote a few testimonials. Wonderful location and spotless. Magical experience in Jerusalem's old city. Peaceful, homey. Simple and delicious with a warm welcome. A retreat amid the teeming streets. Yet none of those statements would have been made about this place in the first century AD. To the contrary, this location was hated by the Jews, and it would become a site of horrors and terror and misery for Jesus. The most ironic review that was written about the Echo Homi, Echo Homo Homi, Echo Homo Homo guest house was from one U.S. traveler. It read, Beautiful view Friendly people, inexpensive. Now, if you'd been on location there at the Passover in 32 AD, you would have written the exact opposite testimonial. How about hideous views, vindictive, caustic, callous people, extremely expensive payment. Here's a place that would have gotten negative stars. Of course, the Eki Homo wasn't a bed and breakfast in 32 AD. It was a Roman police precinct. Originally built by King Herod and named after his friend Mark Antony. In 32 AD, the buildings that sat on this site were known as the Fortress of Antonio. The gospel writers referred to it as the Praetorium, a Greek term which meant general's tent or military headquarters. This was the place of the Roman guard there in Jerusalem. Normally, the Roman governor, he lived in the beautiful seaside city of Caesarea. But at feast time, he would march up to Jerusalem. His presence, his soldiers were needed there to keep the peace. You see, Rome frowned on local uprisings. And since Passover was a celebration of Israel's deliverance from Egypt, it was a flashpoint for rebels who weren't really happy with Roman rule. At Passover, Pilate had to tighten down the screws. His job security depended on it. The temple in Jerusalem was the chief gathering ground for the Jewish nation. That's why the fortress of Antonio was built onto its northwest corner. From the top of its walls, the soldiers could oversee the entire temple platform, and they could move quickly to put down any unrest. When the Roman procurator Pontius Pilate and his troops came to Jerusalem, this fortress became their headquarters, their barracks, and the court of Roman justice. Well, here in the month of March, we're tracking Jesus in the final hours before his crucifixion. So far, we've walked in his footsteps from his grand arrival to Gethsemane, then from the garden to his trial at Caiaphas' house. 
And it's interesting, if all this had happened just a few decades earlier, the case would have ended right there at Caiaphas' house. It would have never involved Rome. You see, the Jews rejected Jesus because he claimed to be God. They charged him with the capital crime of blasphemy. Executions under, Roman, under Jewish law were death by stoning. Under Jewish rule, Jesus would have been drug outside. And he would have had the life pelted out of him with hand-sized rocks. But that was no longer the Jewish prerogative. You see, in 6 AD, Rome had banished the last of the Herodian kings and installed a procurator or a governor to rule over Judah. This stripped the Jews of their self-governance. They were no longer allowed to carry out capital sentences. And this posed a problem. For earlier in their history, one of their patriarchs, a man named Jacob, had made a prediction. In Genesis 49 verse 10, Jacob had uttered his famous prophecy, The scepter, or the right to rule, shall not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes. The name Shiloh was a title the Jews used for the Messiah. The Babylonian Talmud tells us that in 6 AD, when the Romans installed their governor, the rabbis realized its implications. They hit the streets of Jerusalem, weeping and wailing that they had missed their Messiah. The scepter had now gone from Judah. And had anybody seen Shiloh? Little did they know that Shiloh had come. That Jacob's prophecy had been fulfilled a decade earlier with the birth of Jesus. While the rabbis grieved in Jerusalem, Messiah was waiting in a carpenter shop up in Nazareth. And death by stoning was not at all what the Old Testament predicted of Messiah. The suffering servant, the Lamb of God, was destined for sacrifice, not a concussion. Like every lamb on the altar, blood would be shed. You see, God had wearied of the blood of bulls and goats. His Son had come to earth to be the sinless, perfect sacrifice. God is spirit. And spirit doesn't cut or tear or bleed. Thus, God took on human flesh. The Savior of the world would die from a loss of blood, not from a pelting. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament affirms, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Thus, God in His providence made sure that Jesus was crucified, not stoned. This was the death that Jesus predicted of Himself. He said earlier in John 12, If I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all peoples to myself. He wasn't destined to be beaten down with rocks, but to be lifted up and crucified. The Old Testament predicted that Messiah would hang from a tree. Psalm 22, a messianic psalm, even depicts his crucifixion a thousand years before crucifixion was invented by the Persians. Jesus was born to die a death on the cross. Well, the sun is dawning now as the angry mob pushes Jesus from Caiaphas' house in the southwest corner of the city through the priestly neighborhood toward the fortress and the temple compound. They need the Roman to order an execution. So they bring him bound to this Pontius Pilate. Pilate was the fifth governor to rule over Judah. He ruled from 26 to 36 A.D., Pilate's predecessors had been kind to the Jews, respectful of their culture and their religion, but not Pilate. No, Pilate was deliberately antagonistic. He could care less about Jewish sensibilities. He hated Jewish custom. 
He despised their religion. He was openly hostile. When he arrived in 26 AD, he led his soldiers into Jerusalem under a Roman flag. The Roman banner carried an image of the emperor. The Jews considered this idolatry, a graven image. It created an uproar in the city. You see, the procurator's job was to keep the peace. Pilate starts out his administration by stirring up trouble. Later, Pilate built an aqueduct from northern Israel to Jerusalem to bring water down from the mountains. It was a good idea. And it was a tremendous feat of engineering. But Pilate paid for the construction by robbing the temple. The Jews revolted. And news got back to Rome. Eventually, Pilate will be removed by the Romans. But at this point, he's got two strikes against him. And he doesn't want to get struck out. By Passover 32 AD, Pilate was in a conciliatory mood. He knew that he was on the political hot seat. And he was inclined to do just about anything to keep the peace and thus keep his job. Luke tells us that when the Jews brought Jesus to Pilate, they immediately brought up three accusations. First, that he had perverted the nation. Second, that he was prohibiting the paying of taxes. And third, that he proclaimed that he was king. Now, Pilate apparently was quick to dismiss the first two charges as blatant lies. I mean, Jesus was an advocate for righteousness, not perversion. He had cleansed the nation's temple. And a day later, he had stood up in that same temple and he told the Jews, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. In other words, pay your taxes. Apparently, the rabbis figured, if we throw enough mud, something might stick. And they were right. For it was the third charge that caused Pilate's attention, or captured Pilate's attention. In Luke 23, verse 3, Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, It is as you say. Now from the start, Pilate was suspicious of the Jews' motivation. He didn't want to get embroiled in their religious squabbles, so he tried to dismiss the charges. He tells the chief priests, I find no fault in this man. But verse 5 says of the priests, But they were the more fierce, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place, and bingo! As soon as he hears that word Galilee, that's Pilate's exit strategy. This is a way he can pass the buck. Galilee is King Herod's jurisdiction. See, Pilate was the southern governor in Judea. Herod Antipas was the homegrown puppet king in the north. Pilate figures that since Jesus is a Galilean, then he's Herod's problem, not his. And it just so happens that King Herod was in town for the Passover. Herod actually had a palace in the city center. And that's where Pilate now sends Jesus. Now Herod had been eager to see Jesus. He was from Galilee. He had heard of the miracles. He wanted to see a trick or two for himself. Not that Herod wanted to follow Jesus. His interest was more flippant. He was just curious. And so he brings Jesus in and asks him to perform a miracle. Jesus, though, he refuses to perform. you got to understand, Jesus was no dog and pony show. Jesus worked miracles, but to communicate God's truth, not to entertain man's fickle tastes. Luke 23 verse 9 tells us, Jesus answered him nothing. Herod's men of war, they mocked Jesus. They draped an expensive robe over him. 
And they sent him back to Pilate. John records the interesting dialogue between Jesus and Pilate. The governor asked Jesus again, Are you the king of the Jews? And his reply is fascinating. Jesus responds, Are you speaking for yourself about this? Or did others tell you this concerning me? In other words, Jesus says, Before you formulate an opinion about me, make sure you do your own investigation. And that's smart. Too many people today, they base their conclusions on Jesus on what they heard from a college professor or a drinking buddy or a co-worker who happened to watch a show on the History Channel last Easter. Hey, you need to get your source from more authoritative places. Your response to Jesus is the most important decision you'll ever make. That's why you need to check him out for yourself. Well, by this point... Pilate knows that Jesus has done nothing deserving of death. And yet he's obviously angered the Jews. Pilate asks him, what have you done? And the Lord speaks of what he could have done, not what he did. He tells Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus was a king, but his kingdom had no earthly throne or palaces or army or flag or borders. It was spiritual, not physical. His kingdom was unlike Rome. It operated not by law and might, but by spirit and truth. Jesus said, If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. The criminals who ordinarily stood before Pilate, oh, they were desperate men. They would squirm and lie and deny and do anything possible to get off the hook. But instead of begging for mercy, Jesus acts as if he's in charge. Jesus tells Pilate that all that's happened to him is the plight that he's chosen. He says, I have come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate replies, what is truth? Pilate echoes the cynicism of the Roman philosophers You know, the Greek and the Romans, they believed in truth. They just disagreed over what it was. Today, so-called philosophers, they deny that absolute truth even exists. Oh, we live in a world today that's crowded with facts. Just Google it, and you'll have the information right at your fingertips. And yet, in the midst of endless facts and information overload, guess what? We've lost sight of the truth. Pilate asked the right question. What is truth? But apparently he never gave Jesus the opportunity to answer. For if he had, he would have said what he told his disciples in John chapter 14 verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Truth is not confined to a philosophy or a formula or a ritual or even a doctrinal statement. It's found in a person. Jesus is truth. He is the embodiment of truth. One author writes, The truth that makes men free is for the most part the truth they prefer not to hear. Pilate was afraid of the truth. He knew Jesus was innocent, but for fear of the Jews, he refused to release him. Hey, the truth he did know, he lacked the courage to obey. See, this is the real problem with the secularist and the humanist. This is their real problem with truth. It's not that truth doesn't exist. It does. But living it requires more courage than denying it. 
Well, after this exchange, Pilate goes back outside to the Jews and he declares again, I find no fault in him at all. Pilate is a classic example of how people today treat Jesus. They try their best to stay neutral. At first, Pilate delegates the decision to Herod. He doesn't want to make the decision. He delegates it. Now the politician in him comes out. Pilate tries to negotiate away this decision by striking a deal with the Jews. Pilate recalled a Passover custom his predecessors had implemented. In honor of Israel's freedom from Egypt, the governor would free a prisoner at this feast. Pilate brings out Jesus. And then a notorious bandit by the name of Barabbas. This Barabbas, he was a homegrown terrorist. He specialized in pipe bombs and anthrax letters. Barabbas was a hate-filled, pseudo-patriotic nut who could care less about the innocent people he might harm. You see, by this point, Pilate was convinced of Jesus' innocence. In fact, Matthew 27 verse 19 tells us that his wife, Claudia, had sent word to her husband of a dream that she'd had warning him to to have nothing to do with this just man. Pilate is trying to squirm out of this decision, but he knows he needs to appease the Jews. And so he assumes, surely no good law-abiding Jew will ever want Barabbas back on the streets. He's a threat to women and children. How surprised Pilate was when the crowd shouted for Barabbas to be released and for Jesus to be crucified. Pilate even protests and insists on Jesus' innocence. And yet the crowd grows more rabid. Matthew 27 verse 19 tells us, When Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was rising, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. Pilate tries to wash his hands of any responsibility. Earlier, he tried to pass the buck. Now he tries to wash his hands of the whole affair. But no one escapes their decision about Jesus. We all make that decision. We either bow to Him or we buck Him. But we're responsible for the decision we make. The church historian Eusebius, he tells us that after the crucifixion of Jesus, Pilate was ordered back to Rome, but he never made it. He committed suicide en route. Pilate sold Jesus down the river to save his own skin. He's the classic example of what Jesus told his disciples, whoever desires to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In Matthew 27, verse 25, the crowd before Pilate, they shout an ominous cry. His blood be on us and on our children. You see, unlike Pilate, the Jews, they took responsibility. Let his blood be on us and on our children. But what a tragic mistake. For the next 2,000 years, the Jews will suffer over and over and over again for killing the Son of God. Matthew 27 verse 26 tells us, Then he released Barabbas to them, and when he had scourged Jesus. Now this scourging had a nickname. It was called the halfway death. It was so brutal, many of its victims never survived. 
The Roman scourge, or the flagellum as they called it, consisted of 12, maybe 13 leather thongs attached to a single handle. A lead ball was sewed into the ends of the cords to give them weight. Then pieces of glass and metal and ivory were then added to the ends of the cords so that they would lacerate the flesh when it was whipped across the back. The victim was made to hug a post. It stretched out his back. It made the skin taunt. His wrists were tied so that he dangled about a foot off the ground. The beating usually consisted of 39 lashes. The first blows, they caused welts on the shoulders and on the back. By the seventh or eighth blow, the glass and the metal had started cutting into the welts and churning up the muscle. It was not uncommon for a rib bone to fly off the body after a blow. Before long, the back had the texture of hamburger meat. The internal organs were exposed. At the conclusion of the beating, the victim was cut down. His body collapsed in a puddle of his own fluids. One description of the beating says that the victim's body was reduced, and I quote, to quivering ribbons of bleeding flesh. Quivering ribbons of bleeding flesh. After the scourging, Jesus resembled a sacrificed lamb. Now, close your eyes and whisper, He did it for me. The reason for His suffering was twofold. It showed just what our sin deserved, but it also showed just how far His love would go to save the likes of us. Some 700 years earlier, the prophet Isaiah had predicted this scourging. Isaiah 53 verse 5 tells us, By His stripes we are healed. You know, so often we don't appreciate the nuances of our salvation. We see the suffering of Jesus as a whole, but we don't recognize that each blow had a purpose. Each act was part of the plan. Each punch caused Jesus unique pain, but accomplished for us a special purpose. He was condemned a criminal. Why? So that we could be accepted as citizens of God's kingdom and members of His family. He was forsaken by His Father. Why? To birth us as His sons and daughters. Jesus became lost so that we could be found. He was cursed so that we could be blessed. He was bound so we could be set free. Jesus was sacrificed so that the penalty for our sin could be paid in full. And here Jesus was wounded, and viciously so, in order for us to be healed. You see, Jesus' scourging is now your free health insurance. The Bible is clear that not every disease gets treated in this lifetime, but it's also clear by His stripes we are healed. What Jesus endured that day in the fortress of Antonio will pay for our ultimate health and healing for all eternity. Well, after the scourging, we're told that Pilate delivered Jesus to be crucified. The scourging was just the first step of a Roman crucifixion, just the beginning of the horrors. Apparently, the bloody scourging took place in the courtyard of the Antonio. We're told afterwards, the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him. I read on TripAdvisor where some of the guests at the Eki Homo Bed and Breakfast don't even realize the historical significance of where they're staying. 
They're not always told what went on underneath the guest rooms. The nuns should do a better job of informing them. But if you walk down the stairs, 15 feet below street level, you'll find stones, the same stones where Jesus stood before Pilate. The place is known as the Lithostratus. It's the Greek term which means raised pavement. Understand, in ancient Rome, judgments were made in public places and from a slab of stones called a pavement. Romans had an acute sense of justice. One motto read, let justice be done though the heavens fall. The pavement represented level ground or Roman equity among its citizens. And it was always in the open air. Everything would be transparent. Roman justice was transparent and honest. Under Roman authority, everyone was supposed to be treated fairly. The Roman historian Suetonius says that Julius Caesar traveled with his own set of stones. So if called on to render a judgment, he could set up his own pavement. John 19 verse 13 tells us, Pilate brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat in a place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. This place, the pavement, Gabbatha, is one of my favorite sites in all of Israel. The reddish stones look as if they've been stained with blood. And they have been. This is holy ground. Whenever I stand there, I'm stunned by the realization that that the DNA of our Lord Jesus is somewhere down there in the crevices between those rocks. This was where his blood was spilled. Unlike the testimonial I found on the TripAdvisor, peaceful and homey is not exactly what you think of. What unfolded here was more hideous than homey. Painful, not peaceful. Understand the mindset of these Roman troops stationed in Jerusalem. They're Italians. They're a long way from home. They're eager to get back to their wives and their kids. And they're despised by the locals, the local Jews. I mean, like an American soldier in Afghanistan, these guys are constant targets for terrorism. And it's made these men calloused and defiant. To these soldiers, Jesus is just another criminal. A punching bag on which they can take out their frustrations. Oh, you claim to be king? Well, we'll give you the royal treatment. Jesus becomes the brunt of their own pain. In fact, before it's over, he'll become the brunt of the whole world's pain. In the pavement stones there at the Lithostratus, you'll find some etchings. Some lines and some circles etched in the stone. You can see them there today. It was a game that the Roman soldiers played called the game of the king. Here's a a picture of it. The circle represented a crown. The crown for the king. The letter B was the initial for basilicus or Latin for king. The scorpion was the symbol of the Roman legion. The double square represented the die that the soldiers would toss. And the horizontal line was the victim's life. You'll notice to the far right, a sword crosses the line. And this is where the victim's life was cut off. We don't know exactly how the game was played. But what happens next in the story of Jesus was probably a part of that game. The mock robe, the crown of thorns, the reed that was turned into a scepter. 
These were apparently aspects of the, game, of the king's game. To me, all this just adds to the horror when you realize that the Roman soldiers, they were playing. They were toying with Jesus. Not only did they gamble away his cloak, all they did that day was just a game to them. They were making sport of killing God. Matthew describes it. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. When they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head. The Greek word translated thorns means briars. The briars on the bushes there around Jerusalem are thick, they're sharp. They'd be like little daggers penetrating his skin. Blood is now streaming down Jesus' face. It's in his eyes. It's on his cheeks. You know, when mankind sinned, part of God's curse was thorns and thistles. It's appropriate now that as Jesus atones for sin, He wears a thorny crown. And a reed. They put a reed in His right hand. This was a mock scepter. Then they bowed the knee before Him and mocked Him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! Bored Roman soldiers playing their game. Then they spat on him and they took the reed and they struck him on the head. Imagine, they spit in the face of God. Then they used the reed to hammer the thorns deeper into his brow. When Mel Gibson tried to depict this torture in a movie, it earned an R rating. You know, in real life, the actual footage would have never been been aired. The the producers of the nightly news would have refused to show this on the screen. It was also repulsive. If you had been there, if you had seen this with your own eyes, you would have lost your lunch, man. For weeks to come, you would have had nightmares. Verse 31 tells us, And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off him, put his own clothes on him, and led him away to be crucified. If this had all been in Rome, Jesus would have been naked. The crucifixion victims were all stripped naked. They were subjected to maximum humiliation. Jesus, though, was probably clothed with a short cloak, basically a loincloth that covered his private area. It was Rome's concession to Jewish modesty. You know, it's interesting how folks identify themselves by the clothes that they wear. You see this a lot today. The fashion industry is built on this premise. This is why if Jesus had been crucified in a designer suit, hipsters wouldn't relate to him. If he'd been crucified in skinny jeans, corporate executives might dismiss him. If he'd been crucified in a flannel shirt, preppy types might have nothing to do with him. If he was crucified in a cardigan sweater, mountain men wouldn't get near. This is why God chose to clothe the crucified Christ in near nakedness so that all people everywhere, as long as they're not too proud, they can identify with Jesus. And when Pilate was through prepping the Lord of glory for crucifixion, he presented him to the crowd. He uttered his infamous words. Pilate said in John 19 verse 5, Behold the man. Or in Latin, Eki homo. Remember the convent? Remember the guest house in the old city? The retreat amid the teeming streets? I wonder how many people who visit there do as the name suggests. Eki homo. 
Do they behold the man? Hey, how about you? Have you thought through? Have you considered Jesus Christ and the decision you need to make about Him? With the crucifixion, the funeral procession, it precedes the death. Matthew 27 verse 32 tells us, Now as they came out, Jesus carried His cross through Jerusalem's northern gate to the rocky cliff just beyond the walls. Of course, this too was prophetic, as all the events were. The Old Testament sacrifices were always disposed of outside the camp of Israel. Thus, Hebrews 13 verse 11 makes a point of saying that Jesus also spilt His blood and suffered outside the gate. Realize how all this happened. The victim was usually accompanied by four soldiers, a quaternion. The death march was led by a man who had a plaque on which was written the person's crimes. Two soldiers marched before him. Two soldiers followed behind him. And the Romans always took the longest route to the crucifixion site. The scourged victim was paraded through the streets as an example to the locals of Rome's authority and Rome's power. It was a public example. When Jesus left Pilate's judgment hall, he carried the patibulum or the crossbeam strapped to his shoulders. A normal beam tipped the scales between 75, maybe 100 pounds. Now remember, Jesus hadn't slept for 24 hours. In the garden, he had perspired profusely like great drops of blood. He was dehydrated. He's now suffered massive losses of blood. Jesus is near total exhaustion. No wonder he buckles under the weight of the beam. He can't carry this log one more step. And as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. Him they compelled to bear his cross. Now here's the Lamb of God turning the bend. Heaven is on the edge of its seat. Angels shudder in horror. Demons squeal in glee. And this Simon, he's headed to the coffee shop for a bagel and an espresso. He doesn't know what's going on. He's a North African on vacation in Jerusalem. He was an ancient Libyan. He was probably there for the Passover. Mark's gospel says of Simon that he was just, quote, passing by. He's on his way to elsewhere when suddenly his journey and his life are permanently interrupted. He feels the press of a Roman spear against his shoulder. He's pushed out into the street. The patibulum is hoisted onto his back. His short journey is going to change his life forever. Mark chapter 15 verse 21 identifies this Simon as the father of two men. Alexander and Rufus. Mark wrote his gospel to the church at Rome. The Roman believers must have known these men. In Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 16, verse 13, he identifies two believers in the church, Rufus and his mother. This Alexander and Rufus apparently became believers. It's likely that Simon's encounter with Jesus led to his own conversion. And when he returned to Cyrene, He led his family to faith in Christ. In the years to come, a vibrant Christian church develops in the region of North Africa. Its founder was probably Simon. And I can't get over it all. Simon is thinking, grape jam or apple jam? He's going to get a bagel. 
That's all he knows. Now suddenly he's bearing this cross for God's son who's bearing this cross for the world. You know, both Simon and Pilate prove that you never know what a day may bring. When both men crawled out of bed that morning, they had no idea the decisions that they would face. You know, some of the most titanic choices in your life are those you don't see coming. There's no advance alert. And this can happen to us. We're just passing by. But God has a purpose. God has a plan. A divine opportunity appears on our radar. Pilate failed to rise to the challenge. But Simon, he stepped up. Simon stumbled onto something bigger than himself. And he had faith to follow through. Hey, when God interrupts your plans to involve you in His, I hope you're smart enough to respond with yes. Luke is the only gospel to record the awkward encounter that Jesus has with the women on the way to the crucifixion. And I can only describe it as awkward. Luke 23 verse 27 speaks of the daughters of Jerusalem. Now these weren't the women from Galilee. Those were followers. Those were true believers of Jesus. No, these gals were something else. The daughters of Jerusalem. Perhaps they were part of a women's guild paid to accompany the accused to the crucifixion. I mean, everybody on death row should have someone willing to express a little grief when they die. Even if it's just crocodile tears. Apparently these daughters of Jerusalem were paid to lament and to weep and to wail. But Jesus tells them, Do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren, wombs that never bore, and breasts which never nursed. In other words, cry for yourself and for your family. Even on the way to the cross, Jesus loves the Jews enough to warn them of the judgment that's on the way. He sees into their future. In a few short decades, in 70 AD, the Romans will crack down on the city with a vengeance. Rome will lay siege. It'll be merciless. Jesus is saying, hey, if these Romans, if they'll do this to a man that they know is innocent, like me, what do you think they'll do when you're guilty of treason and insurrection and everybody knows it? In fact, Jesus even looks further into their future. He tells these women, then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. This is language from Revelation 6. This is what the Jews will say at the end of the age. During the time of great tribulation, when God rocks this planet with cataclysmic judgments, the daughters of Jerusalem will wail again. They'll weep again. It's amazing that even in the midst of His first coming, His crucifixion no less, Jesus is thinking of His second coming, His return in power and glory. Well, this morning's road from... Gabbatha to Golgotha. It's all about decisions, isn't it? You know, folks respond differently to Jesus. A lot of people are like Pilate. They try a strategy of avoidance. Some are like King Herod. They approach him with flippancy. There's a curiosity, but no follow through. Pilate's soldiers lashed out in defiance. And a lot of people do that. They're, They're hostile toward Jesus. In contrast, Simon the Cyrene, he exhibited an allegiance to his Lord. And the Jerusalem women, perhaps the worst of them all, they just showed indifference. 
I hope you've started asking yourself the question, how do I respond to Jesus? With avoidance? With a flippance? With defiance or indifference? Or hopefully, with allegiance? We started at Gabbatha. In Matthew 27, verse 33, we arrive at Golgotha. And when they had come to a place called Golgotha, that is to say, place of a skull. And that's what the crucifixion site resembled. The face of a skull. When Jerome translated the Bible into Latin, he used the term for skull, Calvaria. Or in the English, Calvary. This is why we're Calvary Chapel. We trace our origins to Skull Hill. Have you been there? Have you put your faith in the crucified Christ? Have you cast your sin upon His shoulders? If not, why not? Don't avoid Him any longer. Don't fail fail to treat Him seriously. Don't be defiant or indifferent. Hey, this morning, please, why don't you pledge your allegiance to Jesus Christ? You'll never regret it.